Hello. Um, as Kyle said, my name is Kelly Dykeshorn, and I am the Director of Communications here at Community Church Roseline. This has been my church home for the past 13 years. Um, I hope that I've met most of you here, but if I haven't, I'd love to meet you after worship service. I was originally going to stand up here and talk to you about um, a tough week that I had last month, but if I'm being fully honest, it's been a bit of a challenging year for my family. Um, we've had several family members experience health-related issues. Lakeshore Bone and Joint has gotten to know the Dykeshorn family really well. Um, we've had medical emergencies with my mom and my mother-in-law. Uh, we've also experienced the loss of loved ones. Like many others, um, I know loss. I was in seventh grade when I lost my stepdad, Bill. Um, I've lost grandparents. I've lost an uncle. I've lost beloved pets. I've lost um, a brother-in-law. And most recently, I lost a brother. Um, through all of these many losses and hard seasons in my family's lives, God has always been faithful. And he has been a constant comfort in the midst of all of our storms. Last month, I received news that my brother, Sean, who was 24 years old, had passed away. My sister and I drove to Tennessee to attend my brother's funeral and to be there for my dad. We were already exhausted from the emotional troll <clears throat> the emotional toll of a tragic situation. But the journey itself was not without its own challenges. We drove for seven hours when night fell, and we found ourselves caught in the middle of a severe storm. Through driving through the mountain roads, almost with no visibility, it was terrifying. I remember white-knuckling that steering wheel and privately, <clears throat> and privately praying to God to help us get through that storm. After miles of blindly driving in the dark, curving mountain roads, we finally came upon a white truck that was driving with its hazard lights on. I followed that truck for almost an hour, and it slowly guided us safely away from the storm. We were both so grateful for that driver, and unbeknownst to that driver, they were a true blessing in a difficult and frightening situation. The story of our stormy journey is a fitting reminder that even in the darkest moments, God is there. He knows our struggles, and he's with us every step of the way, providing us with the strength and the comfort that we need to get through it. I'm going to share something with you that isn't easy to talk about, but God has really put this on my heart. My parents had two children together, my sister Rachel and myself. When we were young girls, my parents divorced. When I was 17 years old, my dad had another child, my brother Sean. My brother Sean had many challenges and struggles in his life. He was a beautiful, sweet boy who only really wanted to be loved and accepted. When he was in high school, he was introduced to drugs. He wanted to be cool and he wanted to fit in, and he believed that drugs was the way to do that. With his addiction for almost a decade, but in the end, it took his life. Drug addiction is a topic that you hear about, 
but you never think it will hit close to home. Well, it hit a little too close to home for my family, not only once. My brother-in-law, Nick, was also addicted to drugs, and his drug addiction resulted in his health failing him. I'll never forget that day that my mother-in-law called, and she told my husband to say goodbye to his brother. We were rushing to the hospital when we listened to Nick's monitor stop beating. That was hard. When asked what happened to somebody who passed away so young, what do you say? My husband tried talking about it and opening up about it, but in the end, we stayed with the easier version to tell everyone. How do you talk about the devastation that you're trying to heal from, something that you're trying to make sense of? You see, my brother-in-law, Nick, was born in a similar way to my brother, Sean. Both were born with umbilical cords around their neck, which resulted in mental delay. Both of them just wanted to be loved and accepted, to be understood. Both of them were introduced to drugs in high school. Both my husband and I lost our brothers only months apart. It is heartbreaking to see the cycle of drug addiction continuing and the pain it causes families all around the world. We know this pain and we know this loss all too well. Addiction in all forms can carry a certain stigma. We may be quick to judge those with addiction, thinking of them as bad people, but the truth is, is that addiction can affect anybody. We need to show the same love and compassion as we would with any other person who is dealing with personal loss or tragedy. Have you ever felt like God has placed someone in your path at just the right moment? At Sean's funeral, just before it began, Pastor Long approached my family and wanted to share his condolences. And then he started talking about his son and his son's drug addiction and the impact that it's having on his family. I remember my sister taking her leg and bumping me with it and telling me, that's, that's my cue. I'm going to kindly try to redirect this conversation because that was just really inappropriate, right? Or at least that's what we thought. As I was about to kindly redirect that conversation, my dad's entire demeanor changed. He sat up straight, he looked at Pastor Long, and he said, what is your son's name? And then he told him, I will be praying for you and your son. They had this real connection, and they spoke after the services. It was really neat to see. What my sister and I thought was an awkward introduction turned out to be God's hand at work in my dad's life. And it gets better. My dad has now found faith in Jesus and was recently baptized in the Cumberland River. I wasn't able to be there, but my sister and I were blessed to witness this moment of true joy through a video. As my dad emerged from that river, he raised his hands and he praised God. It was another powerful reminder that no matter what storms life brings, God will always be with us. He will provide us with the strength and comfort we need, and we can trust him in the midst of our storms.
Kelly, thank you. I mean, don't you just love hearing stories of God's faithfulness, even in dark times? You know, we truly live in a broken world, but take heart because we serve a God who specializes in fixing broken things. It's what he does. Today, I would like to call our attention to something there is a severe shortage of in our world. It, it's a problem that is continually getting worse, and if we don't do something about it, there will be a price to pay. Because the more scarce it becomes, the more hardship we, as well as future generations, will be sure to face. Now, the scarce commodity I'm referring to is not drinking water, it's not oil, it's not natural gas. We are suffering both in our world and in our personal lives because of a scarcity of silence. Silence. Friends, we live in an incredibly noisy world. And especially with the advancement of electronic technology, we are continually being bombarded by sound. And the sound of silence that Simon and Garfunkel sang about decades ago, that Kyle really wanted us to sing this morning, is becoming more and more scarce. Our culture has become addicted to noise, and we are paying the price in our personal lives and in the world in general. Now, it used to be there were certain places where you could expect silence. The men's room, for instance. Now, I don't mean to sound sexist, but unlike women, guys don't need to go to the bathroom in pairs. We don't particularly need to or want to socialize in the men's room. It's kind of a place where we keep to ourselves, a bit of a sanctuary. But even that is changing in our world. My buddy told me of being in the men's room not long ago, and he hears a guy in the stall next to him say, Good morning. So just trying to be polite, he said, good morning. Guy said, you feeling okay? Friend says, not bad. Said, so how are things going? Now my friend is thinking, this is a little weird, but he says, things are going just fine. The guy says, so did you go yesterday? Now my buddy's getting increasingly uncomfortable, but he said, yes. The guy says, how was it? <laughs> Finally, my friend just said, dude, this is getting kind of personal. I really don't want to have this conversation. And then he hears the guy in the next stall say, honey, I'm going to have to call you back. Some idiot in the stall next to me thinks I'm talking to him. <laughs> One of the many dangers of multitasking. But the question is, when did this sound of silence become so rare? The late Norman Vincent Peale wrote of stopping by a lake in the middle of nowhere as he was driving along, and it was as if the peacefulness of that scenery was causing him to pull over. So he stopped the car, he went down by the lake, and he just basked in the beauty of God's creation. And suddenly, three teens drove up with music blaring so loud they didn't even have to open the doors of the car, and it caused ripples on the water. And the silence, the solitude of that precious moment 
came to a screeching halt. Solitude is actually an important discipline in the Christian life. And quite honestly, it is one that our enemy, the devil, hates. Richard Foster, in his wonderful book called The Celebration of Discipline, says this, In contemporary society, our adversary majors in three things, noise, hurry, and crowds. See, whether we recognize it or not, the enemy is diametrically opposed to silence. The last thing the devil wants is you and me spending time in silence and solitude. And this morning, we're going to find out why. Friends, the primary goal of the Christian life is for us to become more and more like Jesus, to love like Him, to forgive like Him, to be holy like Him. And the discipline of solitude is so absolutely essential in this process that we cannot expect to take on the attributes of Jesus without it. Now, what exactly is solitude? Well, the dictionary defines solitude as the state of being alone. But solitude in the Christian life is so much more than that. For the Christian, solitude is the practice of being absent from people so that you can be present with God. You see, solitude in combination with silence and an engaged mind brings us to a place where our lives are opened up before the Lord. It is in times of solitude where we learn to wait on Him. It's in times of solitude where our hearts can receive the things that He wants to give us. It's in times of solitude where we say to God, I am here, fully surrendered to You. Change me into whatever You like. It stands to reason then that Satan is so strongly opposed to silence and solitude. It's because he knows how God can work through a heart that is quieted and fully surrendered to him. So the enemy's goal is to keep our lives as busy and noisy as possible. And if my life is any indication, the enemy wins way too much of the time. Friends, we need regular times of silence and solitude in our lives. And this morning, we are going to look at just four benefits that come from carving out regular times of silence in our schedules. First of all, silence and solitude helps us to hear God's voice. Have you ever just longed to hear God clearly give answers to your questions? Questions like, is this the job you want me to have? Is this the college you want me to attend? Is this the person you want me to marry? I know my will, but, but God, what is your will for my life? Now, it could be that we're not hearing God's voice because God can't get a word in edgewise. Perhaps we're just not quiet long enough to hear him. Perhaps we're not hearing the voice of God because we're doing all the talking. We're not taking the time to just listen. Or it could be we don't have solitude and silence because of our stage of life. Can any of you young moms relate to this? 
they will find you. Like my friend, you can't even find solitude in the restroom. And if, if this is your life situation, let me say this. You may need to get intentional about it. You may need to get creative. You may need to hire a sitter. But we all need times of solitude so we can clearly hear God's voice. You know, I had just taken an associate pastor's position at what was the First Christian Reformed Church in Highland when Jan and I went to a family marriage conference. Uh, she needs a refresher every now and again. And I only say that because she's not here. Uh, but I remember the moment when the speaker said, I have a question for you men. And just shout out the answer wherever you're seated. He said, what is the first word you think of when you think of your father? And I'm sitting in the back with my wife thinking, okay, this is going to be interesting. And a guy over here yells out, strong. Somebody over here, loving, encouraging, supportive. And then one man took a risk. He hollered out, absent. Then came angry, alcoholic, abusive, critical, condescending. Boom, boom, boom. I turned to my wife and said, I'm going to write a book. I cannot stand to see all these people with the same pain that I know a little of something about. But the problem is, I just started this job at the church. And if you know anything about church ministry, you know there is no spare time in church ministry. It's not like I'm going to write the book during the evening or on weekends. Those are the busiest times. So I kind of set that idea aside. But for three years, God kept bringing people into my life with this father wound. And I kept feeling this tug I've got to do something. I've got to, write, I've got to do something. I've got to write the book, but I have this job that God called me to. What am I supposed to do? This went on for three years, and finally I said to my wife, I just need to get away in silence with God. So I made an appointment to spend a week at a pastor's retreat center in Wisconsin. Three and a half hour drive there, I'm in silence. No radio, no music, no ball games, no news reports. I'm just in silence before the Lord for three and a half hours. And my heart just kept saying, God, what do you want me to do? If you want me to write that book, I have to quit my job and let the record show that's a really dumb thing to do in this economy. But I got to the point after three and a half hours of silence where I surrendered. And I just said, okay, God, if you want me to write the book, I will write the book. All I am asking of you is make it clear. Just make it clear. I don't want any doubts in my mind. Make it clear this is what you want me to do. So this is my three-and-a-half-hour prayer. My wife is at home praying for me at the same time. I check into the room. I uh, settle into the chair by the window overlooking the lake, and I reach into my book bag because I was just about finished reading a book, and I'm holding a book that is not the one that I intended to bring with me. And I muttered a few things because pastors really shouldn't say those things out loud. And I'm looking at this book, and it's called Life of the Beloved by Henry Nouwen. I'd owned it for years, never read it. And I thought, well, it's the only thing I got. So with a really poor attitude, I started to read the book. And in the introduction of the book, Henry Nouwen wrote about going to speak in a certain town. And he was a pretty big deal. He was a highly sought-after speaker. 
So that town sent a reporter to cover it for the local newspaper. So this reporter is interviewing Henry Nouwen. And Nouwen said in the introduction of his book, I could just sense something was wrong. There was something off in this whole conversation. So when the interview was over, Nouwen said, could I ask you a few questions? The guy said, sure. Nouwen said, are you happy? The man said, no. He said, do you like your job? The man said, no. Now and said, so if you could do anything in the world, what would you do? And the man said, I would write a book. And Henry Nowen said, so quit your job and write a book. This isn't a book I had no intention of bringing with me. But God knew that's exactly the message that I needed. That was my two by four upside the head. And now I had a whole week of silence and solitude ahead of me where I could write my letter of resignation, where I could wrestle through all the fears about stepping out in faith like I had to do. Times of silence and solitude are crucial when we need to hear God's voice. Because the fact is, we can hear the sound of heaven a lot better when we mute the sound of earth. Solitude helps us to hear God's voice. And secondly, solitude helps us to give God worth. That is actually what the word worship means. It's to give God worth. You know, so often when we hear that word worship, we think of music and, and preaching. But the worship of God does not always require words and sounds and actions. We can worship God and give Him worth by simply quieting our hearts and spending time before him in silence. Listen to these words from the book of Habakkuk. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. From Zephaniah, be silent before the Lord God. From Zechariah, be silent all flesh before the Lord. There are times to speak to God, there are times to sing to God, and there are times to be silent before God and simply adore Him. Friends, we need more times of wordless worship. Not doing, not even praying, but just quieting our hearts before Him. Silence and solitude help us to hear God's voice. They give God worth. And solitude also helps us to get recharged. Do you ever find that you need to get away from people to be with people? Again, some of you young mothers know what that's all about. As someone once said, there's a reason God made children so cute. It's so we don't kill them. Let's be honest. And dads, listen, moms need time away from the kids every now and again to get recharged, to better care for the family. Solitude is important for all of us. Even in the church, there are times when we need to remove ourselves from serving others to prepare us to serve others. We need regular times of solitude to recharge the batteries 
You know, if we're running on empty, we're not much use to God or others. We cannot pour ourselves out if we're not regularly getting filled up. I love this quote from Thomas Merton. He said, It is in deep solitude that I find the gentleness with which I can truly love my brothers. The more solitary I am, the more affection I have for them. Giving and giving and giving without ever receiving leads to spiritual suffocation. Just as regular sleep and rest are needed for the body, so regular times of silence and solitude are needed for the soul. While on vacation some time ago, I read a wonderful little book I would highly recommend to those of you who, who need more silence and solitude in your life. It's written by Doug Fields. It's called Refuel, an uncomplicated guide to connecting with God. And in it, I found this awesome quote. He said, So many of us are tired of rushing from one activity to the next, constantly checking schedules, arriving late, and always feeling a bit elsewhere after we arrive. There's a gnawing sense in our guts that we can't keep the pace. And truth be known, we don't want to. Most people I talk to are tired of being tired all the time, tired of the emptiness that comes from too much busyness and not enough God. If you can relate to that quote, I have another quote for you. And this is from God to you. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Rest. Solitude helps us to hear God's voice it gives God worth. It helps us to recharge our batteries. But perhaps the most important thing solitude will do for us is it will help us to be more like Jesus. Now, how did Jesus incorporate solitude into his life? Well, first of all, we know that Jesus sought solitude in order to pray. Mark 1 tells us the story of how Jesus healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law. She was in bed with a fever. Jesus takes her by the hand, helps her up, boom, she's perfectly fine. Well, word of this miracle traveled pretty quickly. So what happens? Let's take a look. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. So here we've got people pressing in, needing help from Jesus. This is going to take more than a day. <laughs> and these people were there waiting for him the next morning. But the next morning, Jesus was nowhere to be found. So where was he? Verse 35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone's looking for you! <laughs> so let me get this straight. The people needed Jesus. There were sick who needed to be healed. There were demon-possessed who needed to be delivered. People needed to hear his words of encouragement and hope, and yet Jesus went off to be by himself, to seek 
some solitude. Sounds kind of selfish, doesn't it? No. Listen, Jesus wasn't being selfish. He was being responsible. Because he knew better than anyone that sometimes you need to be away from people so you can be with people. So can I ask a question? If Jesus, the perfect son of God, needed regular times of solitude and rest, who are we to think that we don't? The more we seek solitude so that we can connect with the Heavenly Father, the more like Jesus we will be. Jesus sought solitude amid the demands of ministry. And note again when this particular time of solitude happened. Mark writes, it was very early in the morning while it was still dark. You see, Jesus knew that had he waited until the sun came up, his chances of silence and solitude were going to be pretty slim. Jesus models for us that sometimes we need to alter our schedules to work in solitude. It's just that important. Jesus did it, and he challenges us to do it as well. Listen to his invitation found in Mark 6 when the disciples told him how busy their lives had become. Mark 6, verse 30, The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they didn't even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Did you get that? He didn't tell his disciples, suck it up. He didn't applaud them for their Dutch work ethic. Jesus counseled his disciples to rest from the demands of ministry. Jesus taught his disciples that if they were to be effective in ministry, they needed regular times of rest and renewal. Jesus actually showed this pattern of rest and solitude in his own life. Early in his ministry, in Luke 6, we read, One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Jesus sought solitude in seeking guidance for major decisions. He wants us to do the same. See, Jesus had lots and lots of disciples following him, but he needed to choose just 12 of them. These were to be the guys in his inner circle. These would be the guys that he would invest in, guys that he would pass the baton to when his job on this earth was completed. This was clearly a huge decision. But instead of spending hours and hours poring over resumes and checking LinkedIn files, Jesus again chooses solitude. It was very natural for Jesus to spend time alone with the Father when he faced a major decision. He needed to hear God's voice. And he needed silence for that to happen. You know, how often is seeking solitude our first response when we're faced with making big decisions. Well, if we want to be more like Jesus, 
Perhaps solitude should be our first response and not our last resort. Jesus also sought solitude to be reminded of God's will. In John 6, we read of a time when Jesus found himself in a dilemma. He had just fed the 5,000, and the people watching him were amazed at his power, and they decided that he was going to be their king. Whether he wanted or not, he is going to be our king. Well, let's take a look at what happens next. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. And Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, did what? He withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Why? Because Jesus needed to be reminded of the Father's will. The people around him had plans for him, but he wasn't placed on this earth to carry out the will of other people. He was here to carry out the will of his Father, and so are you. Friends, people may have all kinds of plans for our life. We may have big plans ourselves, but it's God's plan that matters. It's solitude that brings us back to center, to the center of God's will. He is the one we must ultimately answer to. If it is truly our desire to be more like Jesus, we must discipline ourselves to set aside regular times of silence and solitude. Now, I can hear what you're thinking. I don't have time for solitude. My life is too full as it is. There already aren't enough hours in the week. I can't get done now what I want to do. When the words of the immortal Dr. Phil, how's that working for you? I'll tell you what, when I look around me, both outside and inside the church, I have never seen so many full schedules and unfulfilled lives. But it doesn't have to be that way. Noise, hurry, and crowds are not God's plan for us. They're tools of the enemy. Friends, we must incorporate regular times of silence and solitude in our lives. We cannot expect to be more like Jesus without it. So how do we do it? Honestly, it's not rocket science. There are three simple steps to solitude that we need to be reminded of. These are outlined uh, by Doug Fields in that book I mentioned. The first step to solitude is this. Stop. Just stop. We need to stop what we're doing. Stop all the frantic activity. We need to stop. And just like we can't refuel our car while we're driving down the highway, and most likely over the speed limit, because come on, we've got stuff to do, we can't refuel our soul in the midst of all, our activity, all of our activity. So Fields writes this, Jesus' life shows us that a person can do all that he was meant to do in the time allotted for him. Jesus said yes to many things, but he also said no to many other things. Jesus set boundaries. Jesus had limits. And when the demands upon him became too great 
and he found himself physically and spiritually depleted, he withdrew. He recognized that he needed time to stop, reflect, pray, and nourish his inner life. So do we. So step one is stop. Step two is be quiet. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Psalm 46.10. Be still and know that I am God. Now you may not be aware of this, but did you know that the TV doesn't have to go on when you enter a room? The CD player doesn't have to start playing when you get into a car? You don't need earphones when you work out or study or go for a walk? Your surroundings can just be quiet. And in most cases, if people are uncomfortable with silence, if it makes them a little crazy, that's a sure sign that they don't have enough of it in their lives. We must get comfortable simply being silent before the Lord. Not doing things for Him. Not praying, not telling him all the things that we want and need. Being still before him can demonstrate just how much faith we have in him. In Psalm 62, David shows this kind of faith. Check it out. David writes, My soul waits in silence for God only. From him is my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be greatly shaken. And then a couple verses later, he writes, My soul, wait in silence for God only, for my hope is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be shaken. God Himself tells us this in the book of Isaiah. In repentance and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. Isaiah says our spiritual strength does not come from church activity or memorizing scripture or attending worship services. As important as those things are, our strength comes from rest and quietness. The more we surround ourselves with noise, the less likely we will hear God's voice. And the less we hear God's voice, the more shallow our spiritual lives will be. But we need to realize that solitude doesn't mean just doing nothing. You see, it's an active stillness. God doesn't tell us to just be still, but to be still and know that I am God. And that leads us to the third important step to solitude, and that is to make a connection. Again, there there are many things in the Christian life that are vitally important going to church and reading the word and praying and serving others. But if we are doing these things to the exclusion of solitude, we are missing it. We are missing it. We're missing it. 
We have a God who is longing to make a connection with us at a soul level. When all our time with God is learning more about Him and reading the Bible and listening to sermons and going to Bible studies without being silent, without seeking to let His Word revive our souls and refresh our spirits and touch our hearts, we are only dipping our toes in the living water. Solitude helps us make a connection with God. And not just a connection of mind, but a connection of heart and soul and spirit. Friends, my challenge for you this morning is this. Take the time every day over this next week, even if it's just five minutes a day, because you've got to start somewhere. Take some time every day this week to discover the sound of silence. Write solitude on your to-do list. Schedule at least five minutes a day over the next week to stop, to be quiet, to connect with God and discover for yourself the strength that the sound of silence can bring. Let's pray. Father, help us to be still and know that you are God. Help us to just stop and be quiet and make a connection with you, the one who loves us, the one who protects us under his wings, the one who empowers us to rise above the storms of life, the one who gives us rest. We pray in the mighty name of our Jesus. Amen.